people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Observe this man closely. His eyes have seen violence. His nose has breathed corruption. His mouth has whispered both love and betrayal. Paramount Pictures presents The Conformist, a film directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, a study in the seduction of the soul. Rape of the mind. The art of political assassination. The conformist, acclaimed at the Berlin Film Festival. The conformist, filmed in the palaces of power in the streets and secret cells of revolution. <coughs> the Conformist, hailed at the New York Film Festival. Starring Jean-Louis Trintignant, surpassing even his roles in Z and a man and a woman. The Conformist, a film that lashes out at a world gone mad. And all at once, the camera becomes an instrument of passion. of destruction, a time bomb of truth for this day and age. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Dahlia Schweitzer. Hello. This week we are looking at Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, released in 1970. The film is set primarily in 1938 Europe. We follow the life of Marcello Clerici, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant. He's the titular conformist, a man who tries desperately to fit in and follow the party line. We're going to be spoiling this film as we speak, but I'm not sad. I'm not sad about that. You can try to make me feel bad that we're going to spoil it, but I'm not. So good luck with that. So Sam, when was the first time you saw The Conformist and what did you think? 
I honestly can't remember the first time because this is something that I wound up writing about for my book about European art house cinema and World War II, which came out last year. And this was kind of one of the centerpieces. And so I watched it so many times that it just is like in my head, it's like it's always been there. And it's one of my favorite movies that deals with those themes. It's it's just so perfect. And Dolly, how about yourself? I actually saw it for the first time in college. I was lucky enough to be taking uh, like an Italian cinema class, I think was the topic. And so I first saw it in college and it completely blew me away. And then it just really stuck with me as just this gorgeous, gorgeous work of cinema and kind of always got a place on my list of sort of, you know, top four or five movies of all time. This movie is gorgeous. The first time I saw it, though, was not a gorgeous print. It was a really shitty transfer. I think it was somehow off of VHS onto like an AVI file. The subtitles were just barely visible at the bottom of the screen, and it just looked bad. But this is one of those movies where I think if you have the opportunity to see this on the big screen, you absolutely must. The cinematography by Vittorio... Storaro is impeccable. And this is, he claims this is the movie that got him Apocalypse Now and put him on the path of his whole career. My God, does this movie look wonderful. Also, I should say that this is the second time that we've been talking about a film that's based on a book by Alberto Moravia. Wikipedia lists all of these prestigious films that were made out of his work, like uh, Godard had a crack at him, a bunch of other filmmakers. But he's also the guy that wrote E.O. E. Louis, the Talking Dick book, which eventually got translated into Me and Him with Griffin Dunn. So right on Alberto Moravia. So thank you for putting a seminal work of Talking Penises on the map for us. And I just wanted to interject that I still haven't seen this movie on film. I've only seen it like, you know, DVD, Blu-ray or whatever. I've not seen it in its cinematic glory. I can't even imagine how beautiful that looks. It's one of my bucket list theatrical, preferably 35 millimeter screening preferences, because Mike, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this, it was that same bootleg that you mentioned. It just was fuzzy and looked like shit, but I am a huge fan of Vittorio Storaro, and so it was like I sort of used my imagination to kind of fill in what it should look like. And, you know, luckily now you can see nice cleaned up versions, but oh my God, that like just imagining being able to see the outdoor sequences where he goes to see his father in that white open fascist architecture that you shouldn't, I shouldn't like it as much as I do. And I certainly don't like what it represents, but oh my God, it's so beautiful. Well, yeah. Or the scenes with him and the professor where it's the light, just the shaft of light coming across and the way that it will cut across the screen. I mean, it's gorgeous. Or when he has the birthday party for his blind friend and you get to see the way that the light is outside, that they're in a basement. And so it's like the bottom half of the screen versus the top half of the screen where the windows are. Everything just looks so good in this movie. And we should talk, you know, 1938, this is set in and the architecture that he is using. You talked about the open space with his father, but those closed spaces with the buildings or when he's outside and just the 
columns and just this kind of art deco look and feel of this movie. Oh my God. It, it's one of those things where you're just like, I shouldn't like fascist architecture, but my God, does this movie look great? I think it's one of the most beautiful movies ever made. I mean, I just, whenever I watch it, I want, I want a poster of like every still from the movie, you know, just like that the sequence when they're in the like the recording studio with the women and the microphones and then just like the lighting in the movie is exquisite and all the like leaf blowing scenes i mean it's just we could we could we could spend the entire hour listing beautiful moments in this movie we could talk about the outfits just the costumes that these people wear oh my god the just the dresses that julia wears are such a feast for the eyes those overcoats that the men wear i mean just it's so reminiscent of like the best films noir, the way that everybody looked so good in the 1930s and 40s, the hats. I mean, my God, everything. Oh, my was- God, the hats. Yeah. And then when you put these people in these huge spaces where like the fascist headquarters are and people are carrying, you know, the statues and all this just wonderful look. I hadn't thought about this until rewatching it recently, but there are certain, you know, equally gorgeous shots where he's inside in these domestic spaces. They look so much like some of the things that Fassbender would do a couple years later with his like his variation on the melodrama. And I know that he's really influenced by Douglas Sirk, who has similar sorts of things, but the specific way that Storaro shoots those indoor domestic scenes, like I couldn't help but feel like Fassbender was influenced because like they never feel like homes that you would be comfortable in. It's just how they think it's supposed to look, which, you know, of course goes with the every single theme of the movie is what am I supposed to do? How can I blend in? And for me, also the film noir quality of just sort of oppression, you know, and imprisonment oozes out of this movie. I mean, you know, the characters just seem so stifled and you have all those rich shadows. You know, that that's my big kind of takeaway that it's like a beautiful film noir, but in color. There are comparisons between it and Chinatown, which is the other movie that I think of as being the sort of luscious film noir, but in color. Well, and I love the way that he uses color in here, especially when it comes to the scenes that are tinted different colors. Like, there's so much blue to certain things. There's the one, I remember she's selling flowers with the blind woman with the kids, and she just looks blue. She almost looks like Violet Beauregard. She's so blue from head to toe. There are moments where Trintignier is colored blue. There's that moment, I think it's when they're on the train with he and Julia, his fiancée. And you've got the blue, and then you've got the orange, and it is so obviously a fake background in that train window. And I love all of these times where we have screens or these kind of rectangular shapes. You mentioned the radio station where we've got the whole rectangular – basically, it's a screen – looking at things going on on the opposite side of the screen. He's got his friend, Italo who is a blind man and seems to be really into fascism, loves it. And the way that he's on one side of the screen having a conversation with Marcello, and then he's on the other side of the screen having his speech. And the way that Marcello wakes up while that's happening, and then suddenly the head of the fascist party is there talking with him. This movie just revels in this idea of like, what's real, what's not real, 
what is a projection, what is cinema. I mean, this whole thing where we're talking about the costumes, the way that this is being lit, all of this just points to this whole movie just being, and I don't want this word to be misinterpreted, just being cinematic, just being this whole idea of what is cinema, who is a viewer, what are we doing as viewers, because so much of this is is Marcello looking at things, especially with the end of the movie, which I know we'll talk about, but just the way that he's the passive audience in a car for almost the entire film. Bertolucci has talked about how the film is, obviously it's a historical piece, you know, it wasn't filmed at the time in which it was set. And so it has a lot to do with sort of memory and Bertolucci's memories. And I think that's also a very cinematic quality, you know, where it has to do with the subjectivity of memory and the film isn't supposed to be taken literally, right? It's not a documentary. And I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to it is it's all allegory. You know, it's all this sort of richness where everything signifies something larger than itself. And I think that's something that cinema does in a way that no other art form can. Rewatching it for what is probably like the 15th time in my life by now, found myself thinking a lot about the way it's similar to but really different from The Damned, which came out just before and I think must have influenced it in some way. But what Dahlia was just talking about, about how like subjective it is and how it relies on this deceptively passive narrator is so different from something like The Damned, which is just this sort of Baroque opera where it's allegorical in some ways but it doesn't have that same type of cinematic quality you were talking about where even though all of the people in the damned are these sort of opera-like caricatures and they're all super over the top and they have similarly amazing clothes there's not that sense of getting lost in somebody's memories and their fantasies and i think my favorite thing about this movie might be the way that they're able to show how those memories and fantasies and the way they get distorted have really shaped Marcello's personality and his view of what, who he is and what his life is like those memories with the great Pierre Clemente, who's should be in every movie really, but like the way that his memory of his encounter with the chauffeur changes I feel like there's this theme that he's basically kind of passively swept along in his life and he's sort of being driven along. So the fact that it starts off with this chauffeur character is just, it's, it's perfect. The chauffeur who's also an agent and is threatening at times and comedic at other times. It's like, is Mangianello, is he a threat or is he a buffoon? And he seems to vacillate between the two extremes. The idea of Marcello as being this passive spectator, I mean, the film has constant references to Plato and the images in the in the cave. And then, of course, that is cinema. And that goes back to what you were saying, Mike, about how, you know, the film is about being a spectator. And of course, you know, when you're in a dark theater, you are a passive spectator, kind of like Marcello is in the chilling assassination scene where he's in the car and again, passive and watching. And I think Bertolucci has said that the film is meant to be a critique of fascism, right? And this idea that I feel like most people who follow kind of dictatorial governments are passive people, you know, because they're just following the path of least resistance. And so I think, 
the film is this interesting condemnation of Marcello and in turn all passive spectators. Yeah, it's nasty. And Marcello, I mean, he's the conformist. He's the title character and he's the guy who wants to fit in. He feels that he's marked by difference as I think probably all of us actually feel like we're marked with difference. I don't know a person that feels like, oh, I'm totally normal. I totally fit in. But with his story, it's this whole thing of that Pierre Clemente character, Lino, the chauffeur. So again, being driven around, Lino is the chauffeur and this whole scene of him trying to seduce young Marcello and the way that Marcello, yes, his interpretation of what goes on with all of that. So he feels like he's carrying around this whole thing in his heart the entire time and really just trying to push that away and trying to fit in and just to your point, yeah, go along path of least resistance. I'll do whatever it takes in order to fit in, in order to be a good fascist agent. Yeah, sure, I'll go and and kill my professor and I'll try to seduce his wife, though his wife is really much more in control than he is throughout most of their narrative together. The dynamic between the professor's wife and Marcello's wife is so interesting because it's almost like the professor's wife immediately has a connection with Marcello's wife that Marcello doesn't have, you know, because he does seem so sort of asexual and emasculated. And then the professor's wife shows up and she's electric, you know, and, and so she has sort of like this amazing chemistry. One well, one thing I didn't realize until I read your book, Sam, was the way that Anna, the uh, what's the lady's name, Dominic Santa character, that she shows up multiple times before she is Anna, that she is the lover of a one of the fascist leaders, that she shows up as Mangianello's prostitute, the one who keeps saying, I'm stupid. And then she shows up as Anna. She's almost like a Tyler Durden character, right? Where you get those little flashes of Tyler Durden before he shows up in the story. Here's Dominic Sanda showing up in these different roles until she finally just kind of unveils herself as Anna. And it's just like, well, here I am and I'm going to fuck your wife. Good luck. I didn't know that about her showing up. Why does she do you know what the sort of the message is behind that, Sam? Honestly, the way that I think about it is just what we were talking about earlier, about how subjective so much of this is, and it's very hard to tell what are real events occurring in this world and what is happening in his mind. My impression is that, you know, she's not one of triplets and they're not like literally appearing as different characters. I think in a way... You could view it as an haunting Marcello. And so she starts to appear in his memory as these different people, because it seems like his betrayal of her is really the only one that has affected him in any way. And so I think that's probably why she shows up multiple times. And it seems like she's the only character who's able to elicit real feelings out of him. Like his wife certainly doesn't. We're talking about voyeurism and spectatorship and the way that he is looking at her and his wife and that he's spying on them from the open door. It's very much a primal scene to me of him looking at them and she knows that she's being looked at the way that she looks at that empty doorway and just like, Hey, yeah, this is what I'm doing to your wife. Good luck. And it was very much like she's cuckolding him with his wife and just like, okay, yeah, this is me. This is what I'm doing. And I I love that she expresses that. And yeah, to your point, Sam, I think it is very much like 
we spend this whole movie basically in the backseat of a car. So much of this is just layer upon layer upon layer, flashbacks within flashbacks. This is one of those where I would love to do like a flow chart as far as like what the timeline is and where we're going and the, the way that it branches off at the end with the kind of more present day stuff where it's him and the daughter and the wife and then the reappearance of Lino. We should point out too that in the book, Anna's character is actually named Lena, so she's the female version of Lino. So it's like he's being haunted by this uh, sexually ambiguous or gender ambiguous figure from his past that is either the chauffeur or the wife or the movie's point, these other female characters that just kind of wander through the screen. Within the world of this movie and the way that gender and sex plays out, you could never really have Marcello directly having an affair with Anna. It's like it makes more sense to me that instead of him being able to consummate this relationship with someone he's obviously attracted to, it's like the way that you deal with it in this world is she seduces his wife. And so it's it's just like relatively common in World War II themed movies, especially from Italy in this period, to have all of these kind of queer themes, which goes back to the way that Rossellini used queer coded characters in some of his movies in the 40s, the way that he would show Nazis and Nazi sympathizers. And to me, it's just so interesting the way that directors in the 70s deal with it, because I don't think... I read a lot of these movies, and especially not this one, as being homophobic in any way. It's just, it's sort of like, because they can't have these more straightforward relationships, and they can't pursue their desires in any kind of honest way, you have all these sublimations going on. It's so fascinating. You know, there's definitely this sort of overt link between his repressed homosexuality and then his sort of vulnerability to fascist brainwashing or however you want to call it. But I think rather than being homophobic, I think it is more about the fact that he's not comfortable expressing who he is because who he is is somehow different from the masses or whatever. And he's so interested in conforming and not standing out and not rocking the boat. And then that's the link, you know, and that fascism just happens to be the dominant sort of social structure in the film. And then I think we're supposed to think, you know, at the end, that as fascism crumbles, that, you know, he starts to realize like, oh, maybe I can explore this side of myself. So yeah, I think it's less about homophobia and more about the sort of desperate desire to fit in and be like everybody else. Yeah, as fascism crumbles, he pretty much has a break the way that he throws Italo to the wolves, and it, which is the most sad scene for me. Italo, yeah, he, he might be a fascist, but he seems like a pretty decent dude. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're just like, oh, yeah, he's a fascist. He's a fascist. And just that break and the way that Marcello takes his baggage and suddenly thrusts it upon both Lino as far as the homosexuality and then Italo as far as the fascism and that he's the one pretty much in Marcello's mind. I think Italo is the one that killed Quadri. And it's very interesting, too, because Italo doesn't exist in the book. And Italo, the name is basically Italy. So it's like Italy is the one that did this. I'm innocent of all charges, but he's not. He's the one that 
thought that he murdered Lino and then actually had Quadri killed. But yet he's just pushing all of that stuff off onto these other people, trying to be as clean as he possibly can but and trying to, again, fit into this new world. But he's not going to the way that he yeah looks at that other hustler at the end of the film. It's like this. Maybe you're embracing that. Maybe you're coming to grips now with the way that you really are in your heart. But it feels very twisted to me. I find Italo to be such a sort of almost an endearing character because he's sort of sad, you know, and I think the fact that it's a little baby too on the nose, but the fact that he's blind makes it seem like, oh, he doesn't really understand fascism because he can't really see it for what it is. And he's sort of just kind of swept up in it. And then, you know, there's that moment where he talks about like how normal he is, but then his shoes are two different colors, you know, and I think that's Berlucci's way of sort of showing that like, you know, he's a little bit clueless, you know, he doesn't see, you know, what's happening in front of him. And so that makes it, I think, all the more tragic at the end, you know, because he's not an evil person, you know, he literally can't see what he's doing. The way that he talks on the radio about Italy and Germany bringing the world two great revolutions, the anti-parliamentarian and the anti-democratic. Well, both Italy and Germany, but especially Italy, they're so proud of, like, with the Roman Empire, and we were this huge thing, and it feels like ever since that, we've been missing out, and really, you know, you guys aren't taking it seriously anymore once the Roman Empire fell. God damn it, we are somebody, and we're going to use this Mussolini cat to show the world just how powerful Italy is. There's something interesting going on with all the father figures in the movie, you know, and I think Italo just is sort of trying to be a father figure, you know, and then he sort of as the father figure is then abandoned or discarded. And then, of course, you have the professor as another father figure who's assassinated and then his literal father, his biological father, who's great. I mean, it's just there's something going on there with all these father figures that he's he's discarding this idea of these sort of like inept kind of comic pitiable characters it's it's almost like if you wanted to watch this and compare it to or find some sort of like modern parallels italo is this character who just like wants to make italy great again he's this weirdly endearing example of this average person who gets behind this ideology because they are only informed about part of it. A lot of the Italian movies about World War II to come out around this time are all so angry, and they're made by these younger generation filmmakers who, understandably, seem to have so much rage that regular people allowed fascism to happen. And what's great about this is that it's not it's very nuanced. It's not sort of black and white, anybody who supports fascism is evil or a bad character that we should hate. It's like he expects us to sympathize with people or, or at least to kind of pity them. And definitely like Dahlia was just saying, the father figures are, are so complicated and add so much to Marcello's. I guess the way I think of his obsession with fitting in is that he doesn't really have an identity and is is desperate to find one but nothing nothing is right nothing feels genuine and i think it goes back to his biological family and like the way the cra- the crazy way both of his parents are his mother with all of those what is it puppies all over the place is she a drug addict 
Yeah, she is. Yeah, and her, and again another chauffeur character that she's having an affair with. The one thing that he doesn't do to fit in is embrace the church and this whole thing of so much of the story coming out while he's making this confession to a priest. I don't think that he's either ever made a confession or he hasn't done it since he was confirmed as a kid. And he's basically just trying to stir the priest up is what it feels like. Like he just goes like, oh, yeah, I'm here to make a confession for my wife slash fiance because she wants me to do this. That's the only reason I'm doing it. Oh, and by the way, I murdered somebody when I was a kid and it was during a homosexual act. And the priest seems more interested, of course, in the sex than in the violence. And he's just like, oh, tell me more about Lino. I, you know, just like I'm surprised he's not rubbing his hands and drooling a little bit. To your point about father figures, the one like very small side plot that blows my mind is his wife, Julia. Her only father figure is her uncle, who she's had a sexual relationship with since she was like either a child or a young teenager. Like, it's just it's just crazy. Well, the way that he's making love with her on the train and she's reciting what the uncle did to her. And he's pretty much doing the same thing to her. It's like, is this now your fetish to be molested the way that your uncle did? This is really strange. I mean, not to kink shame her or anything, but it's just like he suddenly becomes the uncle character. He's doing to her what the uncle was doing to her when she was a child. To go along with what Sam was saying about this sort of implicit fury, almost, that people went along with fascism... I think there's something worth unpacking about the critique of sort of the bourgeois and maybe even, you know, the bourgeois intellectuals. So I think with like the mom who lives in this sort of rambling mansion, I don't even know how you would describe it. Like, obviously, there's some kind of implicit critique there. And I'm not sure if it's a critique of her as being a bad parent or if it's a critique of her as you know, having this money, but sort of not really having any useful brain cells. And then in turn, you have the critique of the professor and his wife, who are these sort of intellectual types, but seem to be kind of useless in terms of combating fascism. I don't know, this wasn't very articulate, but I don't know if it just kind of made me think like there's, there's a lot of sort of implicit critique in this film against people who maybe should have done more to stop fascism like the bourgeois people are not portrayed in a good light no he seems to hate having this bourgeois background and it sort of seems like he wants to join with the fascists because he thinks they're totally useless just like his parents specifically but that whole class of people i wonder now that you've said that if Maybe he ultimately goes through with allowing the professor and and Anna to be killed because he also finds the intellectuals to be useless. Julia seems vapid. His fiance. Oh, completely. Yeah. Oh. She just. <laughs> just very naive. Very, very naive. And there's that scene when we first meet her where. It feels like they're supposed to be doing something more like, oh, they're violating propriety and the mom might catch them. These kind of things like they're teenagers type of thing. And it's like, what the hell's going on here? And she just, yeah, just seems so immature. She's not overly young, but she just feels very immature. And I think it's, yeah, it's really pointing to just how awful these bourgeois people are. She conforms 
in her own way, in a sense, by just kind of going along with these sexual relationships. It's like she doesn't seem to be particularly traumatized by anything, but I think it's easy to read it as she that's like her defense mechanism is she's just kind of ditzy, like, okay, whatever you want me to do. Yeah, I think she's definitely kind of like what you were saying, Sam, earlier about the people who are supporting, you know, the fascist state and the idea of like, make Italy great again, but don't totally understand what that entails. She's even an even more extreme example where it just seems like she is, you know, she's like a permanent child who doesn't grasp exactly what's happening. Which I definitely take to be Bertolucci's criticism of the role, or one of his many criticisms of the role of women in Italian society and like what is expected of women. It's like all she has to do is wear these amazing dresses and coats and marry someone and have a good time at parties. You're talking about the angry young man type of thing and Bertolucci fitting into that. But The Damned being made by Visconti, who is, what, 40 years older, I think, than Bertolucci. And then you get something like Amacord two years after The Conformist, which plays in a lot of the same things. This whole, you know, the title is I Remember, this whole thing of remembering your past. But it's so light and fluffy compared to these other films. It's like, all right, but Fellini's right between Visconti and Bertolucci and just such a different approach. I'm not saying it's bad or anything, but it's just such a different approach that, I mean, my God, to have a triple feature of those three films, wow, your head would spin. This is Bertolucci's best film. And I kind of wonder if maybe that's because it's so personal for him, you know, and he talks about how the movie is about his memories. And so maybe that's what makes the movie so nuanced and interesting and allegorical. I don't know. I just find it to be... This movie, I just feel like, is really sort of the pinnacle for him. I don't want to go into this too much because I think we're going to talk about it later. But the spider stratagem, which has some overlapping themes and was made right around the same time, it really lacks that deeply personal allegorical sense. And like it is an allegory in a different way, but it just here it's like he just seems so angry at everyone and at himself. I've read baffling, baffling reviews of this film that are like, well, it looks good, but it has all these problems. It's like, what what movie were you watching, (laughs) Vincent Canby? (laughs) Oh, God. Wow. I I actually haven't even thought to read reviews of this movie. I just kind of assumed that everybody loved it. I read them when I was writing my book just to kind of get a sense of how more mainstream critics place it in his career. And maybe what people don't like is how there's no hero and sort of everyone is a target. Like even as you pointed out earlier, even the intellectual characters who it's like, we don't want them to be killed, but they're also not doing anything helpful or heroic. They're just sitting around being smart. I'm okay with there being no hero. Oh, me too. But I think sometimes mainstream critics want things to be a little more a little bit less kinky a little bit less bisexual and (laughs) easier to follow it reminds me a little bit of the initial response to bonnie and clyde when everybody hated it and i think one of the arguments was sort of you know that every everybody was a criminal everybody's an anti-hero and we don't have anybody to, to identify with and i wonder if that's a similar kind of thing and maybe 
you know, in 2022, we've evolved enough that we embrace our troubled anti-heroes. But maybe back then it was sort of that was too. I mean, we saw the backlash with Bonnie and Clyde. So maybe back then it was sort of more problematic to not have a clear cut hero. I'm not sure. I'm just really surprised by critiques of the conformist. Well, I'm curious if it's the structure of the film that might have thrown a lot of people off. We're now used to this type of You know, it reminds me a little bit of Once Upon a Time in America, where it's uh, Robert De Niro smoking opium through the whole thing and, you know, the the phone ringing, this whole thing and and all flashbacks and tying memories together. And that's that's pretty straightforward compared to the way that memories are just kind of going along here. It reminds me a little bit of like a Proust or something, the way that one thing will trigger something else, which triggers something else, and the way that we just kind of move through these lines, that we have the flashbacks within flashbacks. I know that this was not something that Bertolucci invented, but it feels very avant-garde for the time, I think. I mean, well, hell, Sam, you and I have talked about so many films that have these fractured structures. You know, this is a walk in the park compared to last year at Marion Bad. When Pulp Fiction came out, you know, and that was like that groundbreaking, earth shattering. People were like losing their mind over that narrative structure. I guess we have come a long way. It's also crazy to think about two things. First is how, as a film critic, you could watch Trintignant's performance in this and not just be in awe of him. But the second thing is he seemed really drawn to these kinds of roles. I mean, speaking of Marion Bod, he worked with Rob Grier a lot at this time. And I don't know if either of you have seen The Man Who Lies, which is Rob Grier's World War II film from 1968, I think. It stars Trintignant as this guy who returns to a town that I think it's like Slovakia. It, I mean, it was it was shot there, but you're not sure if it's Italy or somewhere in Central Europe. And he returns back to this town and says that he's this World War II hero who everybody thought this like resistance fighter that everybody thought died in battle. And he's sort of like, no surprise, here I am. But it's even more nonlinear than the conformist. And you start to question, like, is he making this up to come get revenge on somebody? Is, is, is he just imagining, like, what would it be like if I were a war hero and not this collaborator or person who sat by and did nothing? And it seemed like he just really gravitated towards those ambiguous, challenging roles where you're not necessarily supposed to like his characters a challenging role like silence in the grand silence where he doesn't even say a word through the entire film i love it his eyebrow acting it's on point every time yeah we lost a lot when we lost trentinier this year because he is just amazing in every role that i see him in even a smaller role like something like z he just owns the screen every moment that he's on screen yeah i can't believe i mean i knew it had to happen eventually but it just within the last year or so losing michelle piccoli and belmondo it's this this whole generation of just like staggeringly talented actors are leaving us we should probably talk about the murder and just the way that that is set up because 
so much of this is what's real, what's not real. The way that these men in trench coats show up a few times, including the death of the professor, where it feels like they just kind of come out of nowhere. And then suddenly we are in Julius Caesar territory, where it's all of these men stabbing the professor, all taking their turns to do it. And then the horrific death of Anna. I was shocked by the way that that happened. And then that passive, I'm not even going to make eye contact with you way that Marcello is sitting in the car and just observing all of this or not even observing. And there's times where I'm like, is he even looking at her? Is he seeing what's happening? Or is he purposefully doing that? I'm not going to look at this panhandler who's right outside of my window type of stare ahead type of thing. It's a panhandler who's being murdered outside your window, you know? And I remember the first time I saw the movie, again, I was in college, so, you know, I was much younger then, but I remember just being horrified. Like, at first, I was convinced he was going to do something. You know, like, when she comes over to the car and she's like, you know, her face is in the window and you think that he has affection for her, or at least you've been led to believe that he has affection for her. And again, I don't know if this is just because we're so conditioned to expect a hero. At least I was expecting him to do something, to get out of the car, to grab her hand, to run through the woods. I don't know. You know, I'm a romantic. And the fact that he's just sitting there and he's doing nothing while these people are stat, you know, and again, you know, they always say that, you know, there's all, you know, that excuse of like, oh, I was just following orders or, you know, I was just doing paperwork, you know, like maybe, yeah, I was at the concentration camps, but I was just keeping the log books or whatever, you know? And so up until then, it just kind of felt like everything Marcello was doing was behind the scenes, you know, like how evil was he really, you know, like he's just, you know, he's a kind of like a pencil pusher. And then in this scene, you're just horrified by his cruelty, you know, and again, the, the cruelty is passive, but it's still, you know, this, he's just like, I just, I just can't imagine sitting in that car again. You know, it's one thing that there's a homeless person, but a homeless person being stabbed to death and you're not doing anything. It's one of the greatest statements on exactly what you just said, this idea that somebody who claims they're just in the background and they're this passive bystander, how even if you're not the person with the gun in your hand, you're still responsible and you're still responsible for some really horrific cruelty. It's such a shocking scene. Every time I watch it, it's it's horrifying. The thing that gets me is that the window is down a little bit when she runs up to it and that he rolls up the window. Yes. Oh, oh that little detail is just like, oh, man. Wow. I can't believe you just did that. It's something that we see people do all the time when you're, you know, you're parked at a red light and you see this homeless person coming over to your car to ask for change, you know, and you you'd see people rolling up the window. But it's like, yeah, the rolling up the window, knowing what's going to happen to her and just, again, detaching yourself from that. And just going on with his beautiful little life. I love that we cut to however many years after that. Now he's got this daughter and he's just trying to pretend that things are absolutely fine again. And then, yeah, it's now it's the fall of fascism and he wants to go out on the street, I guess, and see what's going on and the way that he takes care of Italo when he sees him and he is like, oh, you have something on your coat and he takes that fascist pin off of. Oh, God, that moment. And it's like, okay, well, these guys, they're buddies. And then when he turns on Italo, it's like, oh, my God. First, before he even does that, 
when he sees Lino and Lino doing the same thing, saying the exact same lines about Madame Butterfly and the kimono and all this to this trick that he's trying to pick up on the street. And I love Pierre Clemente and I love how awful he looks with this white wig that he's wearing. He kind of reminds me of like the guy who's about to be eaten by the spider and the fly, the way that his face looks. It's just like, what the hell's going on with Pierre Clemente? But I mean, anytime that he's on screen, I'm happy. So I'm so glad to see him and just, yeah, it's like, where'd you get that scar? I mean, you know, and he had, seems to have no memory of Marcello whatsoever, even though Marcello is the one that gave him the scar, the one that shot him in the face and that he thought that he killed all these years before. Well, I mean, he looks different as an adult. That part is fair. Um, it's actually kind of amazing that Marcello recognized, I mean, you know, that he immediately knows who this person is. It is amazing to me the way, and I know there are definitely certain actors who seem to have a talent for this. Like, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but the Australian actor who just, every movie he's in, he looks totally different. I feel like Pierre Clemente has that to a certain degree where even though he's conventionally a very attractive man, for certain roles, he's almost unrecognizable. So I totally agree. It's like, how did Marcello know it was him? Oh, God, I just thought of him with those horrible teeth that he has in, in Belle de Jour. Those amazing teeth, you mean? (laughs) That, what was it, like a black leather trench coat versus him, I think, almost completely naked going around the side of the volcano in Pigsty. It's just, yeah, so different in so many movies. And I'm glad that he and Bertolucci had worked together before, that he was the main person in partner probably talk a little bit more about that when we get to the second half of the discussion because the conformist doesn't come along in a vacuum obviously there's the moravia book and everything but i think that bertolucci was ready to make this movie at the time that he had gone through all of these other things that he had his apprenticeship with pasolini had made these previous films and then this was the perfect time for him to just unleash and We've talked about the dream logic and the way that this is all set up with flashbacks and stuff, but there are absolutely 100% surreal images in this where it's like, this doesn't really make sense for any reason, but I love it. Like the guy who's got all of the walnuts on his desk. It's like, what happened here? I don't know, but I want more of it. There's definitely a sense of humor in the film too. You know, that there is this sort of over the topness which is, I think, one of the reasons why I also love it, you know, that it is sort of all about excess. And I know that in one of the articles about The Conformist, there's this interesting comparison between Bertolucci and Godard. And there's this statement about how, like, Bertolucci had been liberated from Godard, which I thought was kind of like, I don't know that he was, you know, imprisoned or stifled by Godard. I mean, they were kind of each doing their own thing. But there is something interesting there in that, you know, Godard really excelled at this kind of stripped down minimalism and then Bertolucci was like the polar opposite with this kind of over the top excess that you see with like you know the walnuts and the lighting and you know that train scene and the leaves constantly blowing through every scene in the movie and I mean you know the the scene where he goes to visit his father and you're just like what is this weird play i mean he could have just made like a hospital you know it could have just been like an ordinary hospital but no it's like this monolithic weird abstract art installation you know i mean that's one of the things that's kind of fun about the movie 
that also is what makes it a better film and more his masterpiece than Last Tango in Paris, which is also really beautiful, also shot by Storaro, I think. But it's like it lacks as many of those surreal sequences and the dark humor. It is just, I think if it was there more, I could see them as being more equal in my head even though for some reason i think more people have seen or at least know about last tango than the conformist it was an infamous film even as a kid i knew about last tango in paris which is a weird thing to have but it's like oh did you know that marlon brando made this sex movie and it was the nine and a half weeks of its time yeah absolutely and going back to the spider stratagem i think that that's The lack of excess um, is, I think, one of the reasons why I find it kind of a little boring. Like, it feels almost like it's it's a sketch version of The Conformist as a painting. You know, like, it it lacks the sort of the opulence. I'm so glad that you brought up Godard, though. You know, I mentioned how Godard had adapted Moravia for contempt, but it's it's Godard's address that is quadris. When they give the address of the professor... It is Godard's address and that I didn't know that. Yeah, I read an article and I it was part of it was an interview with Bertolucci and he's like, Yeah, basically this was me killing Godard. Oh my god. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I didn't know that either. Yeah, and there was a lot of like I was really disillusioned by a lot of the shit that Godard was doing in nineteen sixty eight. So some of this stems right from, you know, this is two years later. He's working on the adaptation as and after nineteen sixty-eight is happening. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. So all the bullshit that we call Godard on as far as the Khan Film Festival and the way that he fucked over a lot of filmmakers, especially Czech filmmakers, Bertolucci's like, Yeah, I'm done with you. So I'm going to kill you in my movie. Do you think he was jealous of Godard? Like, why would he care so much? You know, he's over in Italy. He can just do his own thing. Why do you think he took Godard so personally? Do you think he was jealous of Godard's sort of press and reputation? I don't know if it's jealousy or just Godard being too big for his britches so often and just casting a shadow over all of European filmmaking. And don't forget, Godard had a lot to do with Italian filmmaking as well. And the Italians had a lot to do with French. I mean, this is an Italo-French production, but Godard was going to be messing around with Ferrari in a few years. I can't remember when they first started to work together. And then all of these filmmakers were all kind of in the same group, and they're all these young Turks. And yeah, I think Berlucci just had enough. It was kind of like how... I don't think Truffaut was a huge fan of Godard either. I think Godard probably took the oxygen out of a lot of rooms. Yeah. Didn't Marcello, didn't, or the actor, didn't speak Italian? So they like dubbed all of his... I forgot about that. He, he had to learn his lines phonetically, phonetically. And then he was just overdubbed. But also bringing up Godard reminds me that one thing we haven't talked about is reading the conformists as not just a response to memories of world war ii but as a response to the events of 1968 and the fact that all of these revolutionary feelings were getting off the ground and then there are all kinds of protests and strikes and then i think a lot of people felt like nothing really changed and were frustrated and so Definitely people were frustrated with Godard as a figurehead of that movement and as somebody who 
really, and I say this as someone who loves Godard, made a nuisance of himself basically by calling out other directors and other people in the arts, sort of implying and sometimes directly stating that if you weren't doing things the way he was doing them, then you weren't a real leftist and you weren't taking the problems of the world seriously. And and so I think by having the intellectuals in the film be so ineffectual, Bertolucci is basically saying like, all right, for all that hot air you pumped into European filmmaking over the last couple of years, like what has really come of it? That's a really good point. And then that, you know, lends credence to the idea of the professor being almost like a, a symbolic version of Godard that is then kind of killed off for being ineffectual. Because in the States, we had death of Kennedy, death of the other Kennedy. You know, Martin one, Luther right? King. Martin Luther King, you know, the the social upheaval that was happening here. We had Vietnam. Then eventually we have Watergate. So, you know, late 60s, early 70s, there's a lot of strife happening here, but it's such a different type of strife and disillusionment than we had with Europe. And who so many of these filmmakers are still working out issues when it comes to World War II. And then, yeah, 1968. And just we're upset with how things are going but in a much different way. But it's the whole world is basically like, this sucks, and we're going to react against it, and we're going to react in different ways. And I really appreciate that all of this comes together within this small period of time and gives us so many great movies from it. Going back to Fassbender, who we mentioned sort of at the beginning of the hour, so many of Fassbender's films were a critique of German response to World War II and the fact that after the war ended, you know, so many Germans were just kind of trying to sweep it under the rug. So it is interesting how these issues kind of kept resurfacing in films of that era. That generation also has a lot to say. And I think Bertolucci definitely probably got some of this from Pasolini, who as we talked about earlier, he worked with this idea that the way that Europe was restructured after the war, where there's this sort of sudden onslaught of modernity. I mean, the same thing happened in Japan, partly because a lot of areas were occupied by the U.S. military in this attempt to sort of help rebuild after the war. And it it sort of kicked off urbanization in a lot of areas of Italy and definitely directors and leftist intellectuals and writers. A lot of them felt like it was this sort of empty gesture and it left people without a strong sense of community or culture or identity. And you could definitely read some of that into a lot of Fassbender's films for sure, but also into the conformist, just this idea of, I'm trying to keep up with the modern world and the way that society is changing overnight because of this political movement, but I have no sense of self and no family and no real connection to other people. Also, just to continue to pick on Godard a little bit, he started to get really up Mao's ass and this whole thing of like hero worshiping Chairman Mao. And that's the one guy that you don't want to hero worship. It's like you're really putting your money on the wrong horse with that one. So maybe you might want to rethink your options on that one. In his defense, there was some wild stuff going on in the 60s and 70s with the leftists in Europe where 
during the end of the war and in the decade or so after it, a lot of people were communist party members. And then it sort of came out what the Soviet Union was actually doing to its citizens and how totalitarian things were. And they were all like, whoops. And I think some of the Italians like Pasolini and and people like Moravia felt a different fealty to the Italian Communist Party. But a lot of the French intellectuals were just like, Oh, how do we walk back our support of the Soviet Union? And Godard was like, hey, I found this other guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't always make best choices, but hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that Mao was doing probably felt like good ideas, especially, you know, liberating wealth from the wealthy. I mean, I can kind of get behind that. But then when you get like the cultural revolution where you're jailing or murdering teachers and artists, it's like, yeah. But then again, it was probably not front page news as far as what the the cultural revolution sounds so pretty, right? The cultural revolution is kind of like ethnic cleansing where you're just like, sure, I'll have my ethnicity cleaned. Yeah, that sounds great. Or yeah, I'd love to have a cultural revolution. We need a lot more culture here. But instead, it's like the opposite. It's like, no, no, we're taking art and artists and we're throwing them in jail and we're giving, you know, the 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 peasants the the wealth or really the party members the wealth. And we'll say that we're giving it to the peasants. It's kind of very uh, Evita Perona-esque. I love this tangent. The Conformist and other films definitely express how difficult it was to be an active leftist in this period because it's like who do you align yourself i mean as it is now it's like who do you align yourself with and why is it that communism which is great ideology is so easily turned into totalitarianism especially in that period so I, I feel for a lot of these younger directors who wanted to do the right thing. I mean, that's how you get Fassbender funding the RAF. It's like, well, might as well blow up some politicians. <laughs> Redistribute the wealth that way. Well, let's continue our discussion about fascism. Let's even go back in time to the 1930s after we go ahead and take a break. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. There are movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. All right, we're back and we're talking about The Conformist, or actually, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about The Spider Stratagem, which, like I said, is kind of an interesting, I don't want to say blueprint, but kind of a a test balloon, let's say, that Bertolucci did. It was a made-for-TV movie, which is very different than a made-for-TV movie here in the United States. This is something that could easily have played theatrically, I think. It looks great. 
It ended up playing a few times, I think, on television in Italy at the time. Came out right before, same year as The Conformist. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting themes that play from both films, especially when it comes to doubling. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Partner, which is based on the, what was it, the Dostoevsky book, uh, The Double. So there's doubling in that. There's doubling in Spider Stratagem. There's definitely doubling in The Conformist. But I love this whole idea in Spider Stratagem of the main character looking and basically having everything in common with his father and going back to this bizarro village in order to try to figure out what happened with his father. It's almost like a detective story of what happened with my dad and why is this town so weird? There's a lot of like supernatural elements to this film. Why is everyone old is the subtitle of this movie. (laughs) Well, I think aren't we supposed to think that like the village is basically dying out, you know, that it's almost like the, the factory towns, you know, when the factory is gone and all the kids have left. And, and again, a lot of it has to do with memory and kind of going back in time. And so I don't know at all. I mean, it feels like it's also kind of like the conformist, not really literal, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I had a hard time getting into the movie. The most interesting thing about it to me is that it almost has this kind of subtle folk car vibe just with this town that's dying out. And you kind of get the sense that they're trying to do some sort of ritualistic sacrifice type thing to bring the town back to life. And you expect them to get thrown into the Wicker Man. I was just going to say the Wicker Man. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Have either of you seen Sandra, the Vicanti film? I swear to God, Bertolucci saw Sandra and was like, okay, I'm going to make my own version of this. Sandra stars Claudia Cardinale looking amazing. And wow. Yeah, that's an easy thing. Yeah. And but just incredible costumes. And it's the same sort of basic plot where this young person returns to their hometown, which is this weird kind of surreal place. Both movies are inspired by, if not directly based on Greek tragedy. And in both of them, the person's father has been killed and they have to investigate why and who killed them. And they both have these weird kind of incest themes, lots of doubling. And, but I think they both feel like a practice run for something. Like there's so many interesting things going on, but in Sandra as well, it's like the plot feels more like a sketch and there's a lot of drier dialogue scenes, which I think happen in the spider stratagem too, but it's just so weird to see. And I know other directors do this, but to see somebody make like the sort of skeleton version of their masterpiece, basically in the same year, right? They're, They're both 1970. I'm trying to find that movie, Sandra, because I want to watch it. You've now sold me on it. And it's funny because the internet is, first of all, convinced that I want to read about Sandra Bullock. And then there are like a million movies called Sandra. Do you know what year it came out? So it's 1965. And the actual title is Vague Stella Orsa or Stella Delorsa. And it's a Vicanti. Got it. Okay, I'll find it. Yeah, it's one of those movies where when they distributed it 
for an English language market, they were like, all right, we're just going to call it after the main character. We're not going to bother trying to translate this Italian title. Okay. I just figured if I was having a hard time finding it, that our listeners might have a hard time. We should probably also say that this was based on a Borgia's short story. So it's got that type of surrealism to it as well. I really enjoy the the whole thing with the statue, the, the head, the bust of the father. And I interpreted his eyes as being more like mirrors, but some people are saying, no, it's like deep holes. But I'm like, no, that looks like mirrors. And just this, again, this doubling that the the father is the son, the son is the father. So there are flashbacks and you're just like, okay, am I watching a flashback? Is the, Am I watching this now? This whole thing of him investigating what happened because his father was supposed to be this big anti-fascist guy who is going to murder this leader and ends up that he, what was it? He chickens out or something happens and then he ends up getting murdered, but then he's portrayed to be a, a hero to this whole city. And so like the city is living with this secret of, no, we actually killed this guy because he didn't do what he said he was going to do. It's wild how many movies there are from this period that just skewer this idea of French citizens and Italian citizens who said they were part of the resistance. And it's like, surprise, no, you weren't. You were literally just doing nothing, going along with your life, saying, yeah, it's cool that there are fascists here. Well, I think that brings us back to the conformists and what we were talking about, why that that the assassination scene is so traumatic because up until then you kind of can forget a little bit about his politics. You know, he just seems like he could be an ordinary guy. And then you realize like, Oh wow, he is directly culpable. You know, he has blood on his hands. He wasn't just taking the fascist leaders for a ride saying, Oh, I need to go on my honeymoon to Paris. Can you guys maybe like buy the tickets or something? (laughs) (laughs) No, there's a little bit more to it. Yeah. He he is going there to take this person that I think that he admired his professor. Oh, for sure. They have a great conversation. They have that great conversation about Plato's cave. seems like a, they had a good relationship, but now he's there coming as an assassin, not coming as a friend. And it does kind of make you wonder, and this is a little bit maybe too Freudian, you know, that about the father issues, you know, and that maybe there's, there's some kind of father issue with his dad. Like he feels like his dad failed him by going crazy or whatever. And then that's why he keeps betraying all these surrogate father figures, you know, and again, maybe this is a reach, but it does seem kind you know, like he has these men who are kind of kind and like, you know, mentor type figures who he betrays, you know, and it happens repeatedly. With the, the father, too, there is a letter that shows up at and we're talking about the conformist now, even though we were kind of talking about stri- spider stratagem, but just for the listener at home, when in the conformist there is a letter that arrives to Julia's mother and it talks about how Marcello's father is crazy and he's crazy because of syphilis. And she says that syphilis is hereditary, hereditary, (laughs) which I don't think is correct. No. Whereas insanity might be a hereditary thing, but it's interesting that the father, I don't know if he actually is crazy from sis- syphilis. I almost said Sisyphus. That's a whole different thing. If he's crazy from syphilis or if he's just, just quote unquote crazy, what's going on with that? But I love how there's this whole thing of you can't marry my daughter 
unless, what is it, your father signs this thing to say that he's not crazy because of syphilis and because I don't want you to have children with my daughter because of this hereditary thing. Yeah, what is that about? It's so crazy. Yeah, it is wild. And the way that he basically grabs his his father's hand and makes him sign this thing, and he just antagonizes his dad at this insane asylum to the point where his dad is like, Hurry up, put the straight jacket back on me. I don't want to be free anymore. <laughs> That's one I mean, of my you favorite can take scenes. Just that scene and make a whole, you know, you can write a paper just on that scene. I never know what to make of that scene because it's just there's so much there. I don't even know where to begin unpacking it. Do you write about that scene, Sam? Can you enlighten me a little bit? So I, I didn't really write much about that scene, but. There are a lot of films that have similarly complicated, a lot of Italian films from the period that have similarly complicated depictions of fathers where like, even if you think about like Pasolini's Terrema, which has a more conventional father at first, it's like, he's this factory owner and he does everything he's supposed to do to be part of this bourgeois class. And you can kind of imagine, or at least I guess I imagine that Marcello's father maybe used to be like that. And in Terrema, he goes nuts because Terrence Stamp's beauty is enough to drive anyone crazy, as as we all know. But Well, and he fucks everybody in the family. Yes, there is also that. A lot of these seem to suggest that there's this hereditary issue, but maybe not in like a literal genetic way, but in a more symbolic way where... I think they're kind of saying that the actions of our parents' generation is what led us to this. And there just seems to be so much anger towards parents not being supportive enough, not, I mean, not being all there. Both of his parents obviously are crazy. And so I think this idea that syphilis is suggested to be hereditary, I think it's just her way of saying, we know that you have this bad family history and we don't want you to pass it on. That's really well said. I like that. I do. I think you're right about this sort of this critique of the older generation because that's, you know, runs throughout the entire movie. And that plays right into spider stratagem as well, as far as the sins of the father being revisited on the son. And oh my God, in the spider stratagem, Alita Valley's character is so complicated. Like she's not his mother. She's a mother figure, but she's the one who kind of calls him back to the town and says, you have to solve this mystery. And then like you get the sense, even though she seems stable and sane, maybe she's not because she seems to be confusing him with his father, which they're played by the same actor, so I get it, but but like, yeah. And also wants to sleep with him. Just like, oh, yeah, come back to this town, solve this mystery, and I might be this predatory spider woman at the same time. And I mean, then he went on to make La Luna, which has its own incest theme. So Bertolucci had some parental issues, I think it's fair to say. I mean, not that we all don't, but... right. Yeah, fascinating career that Bertolucci had, because even before he is directing, he's writing and you know, mentioned him way back when, when we did an episode on Once Upon a Time in the West, because that he gets co-story writing credit, along with, of all people, Dario Argento. 
It's like, all right, wow. Wouldn't have expected this incredible film about America and the legends of the West, these titans like Frank and Harmonica, to be coming out of Argento and Bertolucci. I would love to hear what they proposed to have this story as far as what they were talking about with Leone. It's always fascinating to me the way that so many Italian filmmakers have made movies set in the United States, like genre filmmakers like, you know, Fulci and Argeno and Bava Jr. obviously were really influenced by Hollywood and Westerns. And, but it's, it's just interesting to see when they interpret the U.S. Well, with Bertolucci, he didn't. As far as I remember, like I can't remember where Luna is set, but I definitely remember where Little Buddha and The Last Emperor. I mean, it feels like he's much more interested in Chinese history than he is in American stuff. And just that's such a fascinating thing to go that way with your storytelling rather than to the American way. And I love that he does that. I love that he concentrates. I mean, The Last Emperor was the first Bertolucci film that I saw. There's some things that stick with me incredibly from that, but it's one of those where, I mean, I saw it in 1987. I should probably revisit it. (laughs) I I also saw it when it came out in theaters and all that. And so it was probably the first Bertolucci film that I saw as well. Yeah, it was definitely also my first, although I want to say I rented it when I, at some point when I was a teenager and never would have known that someone who made that film could also have made The Conformist or just like done any of the wild art house things. Because to me, The Last Emperor is a much more conventional film. And it does have, from what I remember, it does have that sort of jumping back and forth in time to tell a story angle, but none of the surrealism or subjectivity or (laughs) bizarro humor that is so wonderful. Yeah, no, I seem to remember it being pretty straightforward. The thing, just as a, an aside, the thing I remember the most from <laughs> from The Last Emperor is John Lone is a prisoner, and he's pissing off his fellow prisoners because when he gets up at night to pee, he pees directly into the water rather than against the side of the bowl, so it makes it really loud and wakes them up. That's what I take away from The, the Last Emperor. Thank you. That was my TED Talk. I almost always think about that when I'm urinating, so <laughs> just FYI. Where's your head at, Mike? Oh, right there in The Last Emperor, 1987. Thank you. Spider Stratagem, I would say, if you're really interested, track it down. It's very tough to find a decent copy of that movie. It is a lot easier to find a decent copy of The Conformist and... Wow, if they release that again at theaters, definitely check it out. If there's an art house theater around you that is doing a revival screening of it ever, stop what you're doing and watch it. But especially, I'd have to say, and I don't want to be you know too nutty about this, but I have to say the way that we're sliding rapidly, uh, plummeting into fascism in this country, yep. that The Conformist is a really good watch at this time. This is a it's a pretty interesting thing to see in 2022. Uh, so many echoes from 1970, from 1938. It's it's a, it's a great watch to watch now. Or a terribly depressing watch. Yes. But it's so beautiful. 
that it kind of like, you know, it, it goes down smoothly. It does, yeah. It's a difficult film in some respects, but your eyes are just going to thank you for this when you watch it. And yeah, like I said, I, I would love to see this on the big screen. I would probably kill one of my former film professors to see this on the big screen. In, in with On film? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm coming for you, Ira Konigsberg. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely something I would, if I found out about, because I'm, I'm in Philly, so occasionally, definitely more often before the pandemic, but I frequently used to travel to New York for screenings, and, and this is something that I never hear being screened. So it's something that I definitely would be willing to travel for, especially if Pierre Clemente was my chauffeur. Yeah, he could tell me everything that he wanted to about Madame Butterfly. I would be, and I would ask to see his kimono too. Likewise. I'd like to hang out with Anna. The one thing I found interesting from some of the special features that are on one of the many Blu-ray DVD releases of this is that originally the distributor didn't want to play it in the States and that it took, I think it was Sidney Lumet, Coppola, I can't remember who else it was, but there were like four or five. I think Arthur Penn, speaking of Bonnie and Clyde, and there's one other filmmaker from around that time that actually wrote a letter to the distributor begging them to release it in the the United States, that it wasn't going to get a release. And I think that's what ended up leading to a slightly different version of the film. There's a version that doesn't have the birthday party scene to it. And they ended up hiring Lee Kressel to rewrite some of the dialogue to do the adaptation for a United States audience. And Kressel has an interesting career. He's the guy who did a lot of the adaptations of Japanese films. So we talked a little bit about him way back when we talked about Mothra, because he was behind the making of the American version of Mothra. So yeah, from Mothra to The Conformist. Go figure. I hate that so much. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast have seen Americanized versions of things, especially growing up on TV. But it just like tomorrow is as we're recording is Baba's birthday. So I'm thinking a lot about his films. And it's something that happened to every single one of his films released in the U S it's like, why do you need to change the dialogue and edit it and sometimes change the score? Like just leave it alone, throw some subtitles in there. Yeah. Same guy. Yeah. To your point, black Sunday, Kaltiki, the immortal monster. He was right there doing that stuff as well. It's like, great. Thanks Lee. We really don't need your help. Hard. But at the same time, there's probably a lot of people who never would have seen some of these films had it not been for, this guy's work, you know, and, and just this whole idea of we have to change this for American audiences. And at least now we live in a world where it's tough to find the English dubbed version of The Conformist. And it's hilarious to me that they're using the English dubbed version of The Conformist for the DVD extras to, to have, you know, not having subtitles there, that Bertolucci's speaking English, that Storaro speaking English, and that when they show clips from the movie, that they're the English dub. Very disconcerting, though I will be using English dub clips as we do this episode because it doesn't make any sense to play Italian <laughs> Italian dubbed clips. So what you've heard throughout this whole episode is some of Lee's work with uh, rewriting the dialogue, and I'm you know, it's definitely going to be different than what we're quoting, which is 
pretty funny because when we talked about Belle du Jour, I think we were quoting some of the dialogue and then I would put in clips of the English dubbed and it was always either somewhat different or radically different because we have to change those things for Americans, don't you know, because they can't understand some of the nuance of uh, foreign films. I just don't want to see the English dubbed version of either of those films. No, no, no. But can imagine that if you tried showing the conformist or, or actually Belle du Jour to audience to like mainstream audiences in the sixties and into the early seventies, like after so many decades of Hollywood films being forced to follow the production code where you couldn't have probably like 70% of the scenes in Belle du Jour in the movie if you tried to follow the code. And The Conformist, you couldn't have that ending. No, no, definitely not. And she would definitely not be allowed to enjoy having sex with Pierre Clemente and his silver grill. So let's go ahead. We're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Joseph E. Levine presents The Night Porter, perhaps the most explosive, important, and controversial film you'll ever see. The Night Porter. It was cheered in London, praised in Paris, and confiscated in Rome. Newsweek International says Last Tango in Paris was a lighthearted romp compared to The Night Porter. Rated R. The Night Porter opens today at Man's Fine Arts Theater. That's right. We'll be back next week with another cheery film, The Night Porter. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Dahlia. So, Dahlia, what is keeping you busy, ma'am? Actually, I've fallen down a bit of an unexpected rabbit hole researching the Black Dahlia and um, writing an article or slash chapter about about her that will hopefully be published somewhere. But yeah, it just kind of I just sort of really got interested in this idea of, you know, female corpses. And then it all went downhill from there. And Sam, how about you? What's keeping you busy? always in that weird spot where the things that I'm working on, I are not announced yet, but I will plug my book that includes a section on the conformist called the legacy of world war two in European art house cinema, which came out last year. And I have a podcast called Twitch of the death nerve. Our recent or one of our recent episodes as of the time this is out is all about Baba and Bay of blood. So we talk a lot about, Italian cinema and how beautiful it is. Well, and thank you so much for talking to me about The Conformist. It has been such a pleasure. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear me shoot off my mouth a little bit more, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Ranking on Bass, or even Midnight Viewing, a new podcast all about The Night Gallery. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. You can also join up with Sam's Patreon while you're over there. Dahlia, do you have Patreon? I don't. Substack? I'm amateur level. Nothing. Just, you know, Twitter, Instagram. And um, old school books that you can buy at the bookstore. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.